I wasn't out there this morning. That's my look. All right. If you remember uh, last week as we were in the book of Second Peter, we started off and uh, I didn't send Miss Pam anything. We were talking about everybody, we were talking about some different things before church started, but we're going to be back in Second Peter 2. We're really going to kind of pick up at verse 4. I, I read those verses last time, but uh, we really stopped uh, around verse 3. And we were talking about false prophets and destructive doctrine and how false teaching is... Uh, uh, brought into the church by those who would uh, seek to gain something for themselves, who would seek to uh, profit in some way uh, from uh, being in leadership or teaching these destructive heresies is what my translation calls them. Uh, and we looked at how the Bible says there in uh, verse verse 3, at the end of verse 3, that uh, God is uh, not going to be silent about this, that the judgment for these men is coming. Uh, this is their, dis- their destruction does not slumber. Judgment is headed their way. And that's kind of what we got through, was that, was that piece of, of really introducing this idea of false teachers and how they bring in destructive doctrines and, and, and some of that. But uh, we didn't really get to the rest of that, uh, verses 4 through verses 11, where it talks about, it kind of gives us some examples uh some it gives us some shows us uh, what god has done and and really what i would call encouraging and we may not think about them as encouraging but uh really encouraging examples of how god has dealt with those who have stood against his truth and and how he will deal with them over the next few weeks and we'll do this tonight and then we'll look at uh, the next section which my my bible the heading title for that is the depravity of false teachers and then the last section of chapter two my heading is the deceptions of false teachers i want to spend a few weeks talking about this um as i talked about last week you know why is it so important that we talk about false teaching why is it so important that we recognize these things and 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 understand them it's because it's so prevalent in our day it's because there's a lot of things there are a lot of things flying under the banner of Christ that have nothing to do with Jesus that have nothing to do with God's word and we need to uh, be able to spot those things so that we can stay away from them so we can steer others away from that kind of teaching that will lead them uh, to a path of self-righteousness or a path of something that has nothing to do with repenting of sin and believing in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ this is this is the gospel that saves the, the, the life, the, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our repentance and faith in Him and who He is and what He, is, what he has said, and that is, is where salvation lies, not in anything else. And so I want to look at this passage. I'm going to read uh, verses 4 through 11 quickly. There the Bible says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those 
who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So here in this text, Peter really talks about, um, really I think it's kind of unrolling this piece of doctrine here in uh, that, that flows forward from verse 3 of First Peter that talks about the fact that judgment is coming for false teachers, right? So it tells us that judgment's coming for false teachers, but then he explains that in depth, and I think he gives us what are encouraging examples. Now, we may not think about the fact that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down. We might not think about that as encouraging, but it is, because what we see is that God is consistent in what he says, and that is that, that those who are his, he cares for, he oversees, he protects, he delivers, and those who would stand opposed to him, he will judge, and he will judge righteously. God cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. These angels that, that stood against God, that they were cast down. God kicked them out. God set them aside. They are no longer those who are called the angels of the Most High. They are those who we call, in the common vernacular, demons. Right? Demons are simply fallen angels. They are those who rebelled against God under the leadership of Satan himself, and they have been cast down. That, encourage, that should encourage us because God deals with unrighteousness. Look at what he says about Noah. Surely the, the account of Noah in some sense is encouraging. Now, I always joke about this, but it's kind of not a joke. You ever wonder why Christians decorate the walls of the nurseries of their children with the greatest tragedy to ever befall mankind? I've thought about that before. I love the animals. I think it's great. I love the rainbow and the promise of Noah and all of that stuff. But like, this is the greatest judgment we've seen fall ever in the biblical record up until when we see final judgment. It's one of the greatest judgments that's ever happened, probably the greatest judgment that's ever happened in all of Scripture, in all of the history of the world, right here, and yet we're like, oh, it's cute. Look at the animals. I don't know. I, I think about weird things. Maybe I don't think about things like I do. But look at Noah. God didn't spare the ancient world, right? They, they, they had risen up to such a point that God, uh, the Bible says that he, he despised mankind. He, he hated what they had become. And he was going to pour out judgment upon them. But he did not pour out judgment upon Noah and his family. Why? Because they were righteous. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Do you ever think about Noah being a preacher? I don't think that most of us keep that in our minds. But Noah spent decades preaching preaching that judgment was coming, preaching that, that people needed to turn to God, preaching that the, there is a way of righteousness, that, that there was judgment coming. All the while, he's building this ark out here where, where they had, there was no reason for them to believe that there would ever be water of any kind. The way that I understand the biblical record, they, they had never understood rain as we understand it, right? They knew what water was, but, but, but the earth was 
They, they understood rain. I'm, I'm, that's in the garden. But they never understood it flowing up and rain falling in that capacity. Maybe they'd seen floods, possibly, but there was no way where that was that they thought that anything like this was possible, and they thought Noah was probably a madman. And yet what did he do? He worked on the ark and he preached righteousness. Noah encourages me because when I think about Noah as a preacher of righteousness and I think about the activity that God had called him to undertake, I think, you know what? God commanding us to preach the gospel to a world that's lost and dying and some people thinking that we're a little bit weird, there's no way that they think, you know, that we're as weird as Noah. I mean, Noah was doing something that made zero sense to anybody. Noah was out there preaching that there was a God in heaven and that there was judgment coming and they needed to repent. They needed to practice righteousness. And God saved him. God God preserved him. But he didn't save the ancient world, but saved Noah. You see this? This is the picture. Judgment's coming for the unrighteous. Judgment's coming for those who reject God and His truth. Judgment's coming for those who would stand against God in pride and in self-righteousness. But those who are righteous through God, they're preserved, they're protected, they're saved. The Bible here says that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were turned into ashes, condemned to destruction, making an example of them to those who afterward would live ungodly. To this day, Sodom and Gomorrah are names that we associate with judgment. Even those who aren't Christians know what Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a famous comic book character who's been in some famous movies, and uh, she actually turns out to be a good guy in the movies, but her name is Gomorrah because she was such a, a, a warrior and, a, and kind of an evil person early on in, in, in I guess, the story. Right? People know these names. Why? Because they're so connected to the idea of evil, to the idea of wickedness and depravity, that it's permeated even the non-Christian culture. And God says that they were destroyed. Why? To make them an example. To make them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. You ever think about that? Until whenever I read this text, I think about it, but the first thing I think about in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, I just think they're wicked people and God judged them because that's who God is and they needed judging. But the Bible says He judged them to put them on display as an example to the wicked. This is why, I think I talked about this Sunday morning, this is why we have to proclaim the realities of the judgment of God. We don't We don't do it because we just delight in saying, hey, you know what? Judgment's coming for you. Ha, ha, ha. No. We do it with a broken heart, understanding as we tell people like, God has done this. God has promised He will do this again. And if you don't repent, if you don't come to know God through through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are underneath the same kind of condemnation. God's not going to judge the world by a flood again. He promised that. But Peter in another place says it will come as fire. Judgment will come and Christ himself will come to judge the quick and the dead. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but Lot was not. This is something a lot of us don't like. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like the fact that the Bible says this about Lot. What's it say? It says he's righteous. You ever think about Lot as a righteous man? 
You ever think about how he tried to get one over on his uncle Abraham? They were out there, and do you remember the story that Lot and Abraham, they both had great flocks, they had great herds of animals, and and, and Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen, they got to, I guess, like having street gang fights. They were fussing with each other. Our animals go here, and you're taking all the good grass, and you're getting in the way of our animals getting to the water, and they were having these fights. And Abraham said, the whole country is open to us. You choose your way, and I'll take the other way. And what did Lot do? He took the best, what he thought was the best ground. And the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. That's what the text actually says in that account. Now, I think about that. I think about him treating Abraham that way. I think about the fact that Abraham had helped him all along the way, rescued him once after he was taken into captivity. I think about the fact that the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom which means he was, he was already kind of, his heart was kind of going that way. He wanted to be amongst that group. He, he thought that that was where wealth and prestige probably was, and that's what he found there. Lot was a man about town in Sodom. He was in the gates, which in that time meant he was kind of part of the city government. He was, he was a man that was respected in some level in Sodom. And I think about all that, and I think, man, I don't think that from my perspective and what I know that I would count Lot as being a righteous man. Well, then why did God deliver him? God delivered him because he was righteous. I don't know how that worked out, that Lot, his heart was actually bent towards God, and yet he was, he was involved in some of this other stuff. Uh, he wasn't probably participating in all of the, the just depraved sinfulness that was going on in Sodom, but he definitely knew what was going on. We saw that when the angels come and they, they come in, into Lot's house and all these men gather up and they're going to take them and abuse them and, and he's doing that. And then another thing he does, he's, he's trying to offer his daughters to them. Lot undertakes things that we don't understand as righteous, but what's, what we count as righteous is all limited by our knowledge. God says that Lot was righteous and he proved it because he delivered Lot from that. One of the things that we can look at in the Scriptures and understand for sure is this. God will always protect His people when judgment falls. Always. Now, does that mean, I don't know where you're at on end times theology, okay? I, you, I probably have a little different idea about it as you do. I don't necessarily think that that means that we're all getting a first-class ticket out of here before anything bad happens. I don't, I don't think that that's the best way to understand the Scriptures. A lot of smart people disagree with me, and that's fine. But here's what I do know. If I'm here when judgment of some type from God begins to fall, in whatever way God chooses to, He will preserve His people. He will protect His people. That's the promise of God. Lot is delivered. Why? Because he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That's what it tells us. Lot was tormented by what was going on around him. Why did he persist there? We don't know that. But he was tormented. He was convicted. He was a man that apparently loved God. God counted him as righteous. It's the same words that are used to describe Abraham. And so God delivered him. And he gives us all of these examples. Why? 
Because He wants us to understand that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. He says if He'll deliver Lot from that, from Sodom and Gomorrah, if He can deliver Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, if He can deliver uh, Noah from judgment of the entire world in the waters of the flood, guess what? He can deliver you out of temptation. He'll reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He's got that under control. We don't have to worry about condemning the judge, judging other people, judging the wicked and saying, oh, I'm going to enact this judgment upon you. No, I don't have to worry about that. God's got that handled. But I can have confidence that God is going to deliver me. Even the temptations that so easily mislead me, so easily take me off the path, so easily I, I get into sin. God can deliver us from that. How do we know it? Because God has delivered way more people from a lot, of, a lot greater sins and temptations. He has walked them out of that. So we've got to understand, God can deliver. He can even deliver in the context of this whole chapter of Second Peter. He can deliver people from false teaching. I have really good friends who I believe are laboring under false teaching. I have a friend that's a pastor that I believe is laboring under an intense level of false teaching. It's in relation to the end times. Now, I don't really fight with people too much over the end times. There's a lot of different views on different things and premillennial and postmillennial and all millennial and all these things. But the theology that this person holds begins to mess with things that have to do with salvation, that have to do with ultimate judgment. And I believe he's not only laboring under false teaching, I believe he's passing on false teaching. God can deliver. I think there's a lot of people out there in cults that are calling themselves under the name of Christian that can be delivered from that. I think there are people that are laboring under false views of salvation. I think they can be delivered from that. I tell you that because sometimes when we begin to talk about false teachers, and I did a little bit last Wednesday, and I make no apologies for it because I think we ought to call out the wolves. Right? It's easy to throw rocks at the wolves and say they're out there doing this, but when you've got a loved one and I've got a loved one who are underneath that kind of teaching, they're under, underneath that kind of oppression... It's easy to just kind of think, well, I don't, I don't know how, what to do. God can deliver. God can deliver people. They can, if He can deliver them out of the occult, He can deliver them out from under some false doctrine teaching calling itself Christian. He can deliver them out of the cults, out of Mormonism, out of Jehovah's Witness. He can, he can deliver them out of those things. And we've got to understand that. Sometimes we forget. I forget. I really forget the power of God. I really don't account for the power of God. And I just kind of think, I don't know. They're so far in it, and they're so far deceived of what Christianity really is. And they've got all these weird ideas, and, and I don't even know. Well, how, how can that happen? And it happens the same way anybody gets delivered from anything. God opens their eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only God can do that, and He leads them to salvation because only God can do that. They're not going to make a choice to come out from underneath false teaching. God is going to reveal the false nature of it. They're going to be convicted, and they're going to pay whatever price they got to pay to depart from that because the Spirit of God is driving them to. And so we've got to understand that God can deliver. 
He will judge the wicked. We need to warn people, but God can deliver. He goes on to begin this, again, this description of the false teachers in verse 10. What does he say about them? He can deliver the godly out of temptations. This is verse 9 again. To reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So he's talking about those under judgment. And he says, especially those who walk according to the flesh. In the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He's saying, even those, those false teachers, they're under judgment. And people can be delivered from them. But here's what he says about them. First of all, they walk according to the flesh. In the lust of uncleanness. They despise authority. They're presumptuous and self-willed. They, they want what the world has. They're tangled in the lusts of the world. And perhaps what I think is the greatest, the greatest marker of a false teacher, particularly those who are false teachers who want to claim themselves to be Christian, are, they, are those that reject authority, particularly authority of the Word of God. This sounds silly, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this with you because it's, because it's true and it points out what I'm trying to say. I saw uh, this, this person in, in a message board situation. And you've got to understand, I'm, I'm, trying to, I, I'm teaching some classes now, and so I've got to pay attention to things like citation, you know. I've never hated anything worse than I hate, like having to cite my sources on a paper. Can I not just write it at the bottom where I got it instead of having to go into all this formatting? And if I get a comma wrong, then I'm going to lose points. I hate that. Okay, but citation is important because you, you're telling people where you got your information because we need to know if it's a legitimate source, if, there, if there's any kind of authority in it, and, and whether they know what they're talking about. This person asked the question, how do I cite for a paper the vision I had the other day in a dream that God gave me. Okay, you can argue with me about dreams and visions. I got my own opinions about that. I think for the most part, that's something that's not operative in, in this day. I, I think there's exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's what I would say. But to say that I'm going to cite my own vision in a dream as an authority to write about a biblical theological topic and say, that's where I draw my authority from. God told me something in this dream. It has no correlation to God's word. We got big problems. There's no authority there. There's no authority flowing from the word of God. What you'll see in false teachers is the authority typically rests in them. Whatever they say is what's right. And I tell you this all the time, particularly when I'm talking about these kinds of topics, and some people get a little upset with me or ticky because I'm throwing, throwing some rocks out there that may hit some people and certain teachers and stuff that they like. If, if you think I'm saying anything that has, that's, that's wrong according to the Scripture, I want to have that conversation. Challenge me, and I will sit you down and try to show you why I have interpreted a certain passage in a certain way. I'll do my very best to explain you my thought process, and if we arrive at a place where I see that, you know what, I have been mistaken in that, I will stand up in front of the church and tell them, hey, I was teaching this, and I said this, and you know what, somebody brought this to me and showed me something else, and we looked at it, and... I, was, I believe I was wrong about that, and here's what I think the actual truth is. But false teachers, they're not going to do that because the authority comes from them. It's what I call God told me theology. They're going to stand up and say, well, God told me this, and God told me that, and God told me this. 
If somebody's going to stand before God as my witness, as, as long as I'm, I'm pastoring at West Park Baptist Church, if somebody's going to stand in this pulpit and say, God told me, they better be able to point out in the Bible where they told them. Because the authority that we labor underneath, underneath the, the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, what God has given us as authoritative is his word. We have no other source. We don't believe in some extra biblical authority in the church. The church only has the authority that the Bible gives it. The Word of God, right? The, we don't believe in the authority of the pastor. Yeah, pastors, there's such a thing as pastoral authority, but pastoral authority is, is delegated authority from God, and it only, has the, it, it has only exists within the limitations given it by the Word of God. We've got to be careful. False teachers will almost always at some point or another of doctrine, and sometimes in many or or in all points of doctrine, they will say, well, if you try to point out chapter and verse, it'll just say, well, you know, that's what you think, but God told me this and this this is what's right. No. There's a group in East Tennessee, and most people never heard of them. They're called Branamites. I don't know. You ever heard of the Branamites? The Branamites, they had a guy who called himself a prophet years and years ago. He's been dead for, for a long time. But uh, William Branham, I believe, is his name. And the Branhamites look at William Branham as being uh, the, their prophet, much like the Mormons would say Joseph Smith was their prophet, okay? The Branhamites, are, are, they, they really kind of present as like independent fundamental Baptists. They got all kinds of doctrine. And this guy who was a teacher in this group, and it's a very small group, he got up one day and he was talking about how um, he believed and uh, that uh, how wicked it was for people to to marry outside of their their race and and all of this stuff and, and I was like oh gosh here we go again number one here's the thing and nobody in this room one race we're all just we're all muddled up like a like a mutt you found on the side of the road right we're so many generations removed from Adam no such thing as a pure blood anything no such thing no such thing but that's beside the point here's what the guy said he was talking about this. And he said, I know what you're going to bring up if I say this. You're going to bring up Moses. And that's what I would bring up because Moses married an Ethiopian. And you want to think that she wasn't, she wasn't dark-skinned woman? I guarantee you she was. She was an Ethiopian. And most scholars believe that that's the reason that Miriam spoke against Moses is because he married an Ethiopian woman. And that's why all the stuff happened with Miriam. You know what this cat said when he's preaching about that? He says, you're going to bring up Moses. And here's what he said. If Moses was here today, he'd have to abide by what Dr. Branham said too. Hang on. You're going to put Moses under the authority of the prophet, under the authority of the prophet of your false religion? You're going to say that, that if you're going to put Moses under, surely he'd put Peter and Paul and, and everybody else underneath it. That's God told me theology. And we've got to be so careful. So if I ever stand up here and I say, God told me, and I don't really quickly say, well, the Bible says this, we, y'all need to ask me where I got that from. I mean it. Please do. I point this out because you and I all, we've all got points of doctrine that we've drawn from places other than the Scripture, and, and I've got to be willing to correct myself. You've got to be willing to correct yourself. We've got to be willing to be corrected by one another, but we've also got to be willing to see the people out there that are using authority that has nothing to do with the Bible and warn people 
That's why I was naming names in here last week, because I'm trying to warn you so that you might warn others. There are false teachers everywhere. The Internet has given anybody with a camera and a microphone license to think that they are preaching the truth, and half of them won't even pick up the Bible. They're tangled in the lusts of the world. They reject authority of all kinds. The Bible says they're presumptuous, self-willed. Some translations say bold and willful. I found one translation that said audacious and defiant. I like that. That's what they look like. They're audacious. They're defiant. It says they speak evil. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. That word is a word that most likely is referencing angels, not the, not the fallen angels, but the, the, the righteous angels of God. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It's actually referencing the angels. I said that backwards. It's referencing the angels from verse 11. That's what it's referencing. You see there, you ought to have to correct me after. I just got done saying to correct me. You'd have had to correct me afterwards. When it says they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, that's, that's, most, that's, that's most likely a reference to the, to the angels of before. Angels who are greater in power and might. And he says they, they don't bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. I'm going to be honest with you. I wrote that note a few days ago, and I don't know if I agree with myself there. Here's the, here's the, here's the point, okay? The point is, is that they recklessly dismiss any kind of authority. The angels... They were greater in power and might. He says, even those, and I believe again, he's re- I, I do believe he's referencing the fallen angels. He dismisses them as if they don't have any power. Right? That's, that's, I think that's what he's trying to say there. I lost my own train of thought in my own notes there for a minute. Y'all had to forgive me. I am, I'm, I'm a little bit human today. He's saying, yeah, they're wicked. The angels that were cast out, they're obviously wicked. God did that. But, but they're dismissing them that, like they have no power. Yeah, they're in willful sin. But they're to be reckoned with. He says they don't even, they, they don't even need to bring, the, bring this reviling accusation again. The angels, angels don't even do that. They're not afraid. They understand that while Christ has overcome evil, we should understand we should understand that while Christ has overcome evil, it's not to be taken lightly. Evil's real. There's evil things out there. And so when, when we speak, we even get that in the book of Jude, and it's talking about Satan and how, how Michael didn't even speak poor of him. I think it's in, the, it's, in the same, it's in the same realm. God's handling that, right? We need to account for evil. We need to make sure that we recognize it and we don't dismiss it out of hand. To just be, to just stand here and to act like you ever hear somebody just be really dismissive, like, "Well, yeah, I know the devil's out there, but I'll kick the old devil in the rear end." Like, you better be careful how you're talking, right? Yeah, God can overcome the name of Jesus overcomes all, but understand, it, evil's real. And I think Peter's saying that these false teachers they don't have a, they don't have the, they don't fear the authority of God, and they don't fear the the the, the reality of evil. 
And if we don't recognize that when somebody is so willful that they think, I don't care what God has to say, but I think somehow I've got power over evil and I can, I can just speak whatever. That's a lot of what goes on. I'm going to cast this out. I'm going to cast that out. And if I think I can handle that, and I'm not even basing that on the authority of the Word of God, it's on my own authority, we've got problems. And so I apologize for my muddled mouth tonight. I just misunderstood my own notes for a minute, and then I thought, I didn't write that down. I don't even believe me. But I had it right, I think. But I want you to understand that false teachers, they're going to be judged. We need to leave that with God. We need to warn people when we can warn them. But we need to, be, we need to look at this and understand if God can deliver, if God can deliver these people out of these amazing situations, Noah, Lot, others, God can deliver from false teaching, and God can deliver you and me in everyday temptation. That's the encouragement for tonight. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever difficulty you're walking through, you can, through the power of God, overcome it because God's track record is far greater than your temptation or my temptation in this day. It's far greater than your struggle, far greater than my struggle. So be encouraged. Yes, there's destructive doctrine out there. Yes, there's false teachers out there. But God is going to judge them. But be encouraged because God can deliver you. I'll ask you to forgive me tonight. I don't know the last time I got that lost standing in a pulpit. But um, I pray that you heard what God had to say from his word anyways tonight. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I do pray that you'd bless it over my muddled mouth. God, I ask that you would uh, help us all to lean on you or to not get overwhelmed with whatever's out there in the world, not to dismiss evil out of hand, Lord, but to understand that you are powerful and it's all in your hands. Lord, to stay in our proper mode of dependence upon you, not being flippant about spiritual things, not dismissing your authority and not following after those who dismiss your authority. I pray you'd help us in Christ's name. Amen and amen.